references a system of the world that is evil that has Satan as its head. And the way that Isaiah describes the fall of Babylon here in 47 is relevant to every generation in human history. This is not specifically descriptive for the Israelites for the time that they lived in. Because as we're going to see this morning, we're not looking at 46 and 47 together, but 47 and 48. And we're going to see that while it's human nature to oppose God, to live for self, to live in a way that communicates the world revolves around one person and that self, that opposing God leads to destruction. See, for those who, when they think about Mother's Day, they find pain. It's the practical outworking of what it looks like when someone follows the world. Destruction and pain ensues. But we're not just looking at destruction and pain. We're also going to look at God's grace in salvation. And we're going to look and see that God saves some for His purpose. And the result is very different for those who are His children. Not one of us is here, stands perfect. Without God intervening, each one of us faces a consequence that we cannot fathom. Each of us needs God to save us. And this morning, God, through the prophet Isaiah, will give us a clear reason why He saves sinners at all. So let's open God's Word together, open up to Isaiah 47. Because it's two chapters, it's very long. I will not read it verse by verse. In my Bible, it spans six pages. Yes, six. And that's because for my 51st birthday, my family bought me a Bible that has big enough text that I can actually preach from it without glasses. I have a long year ahead of me transferring all my notes and my highlights and my underlining because I'm a very visual person. And even as I was trying to prepare, I had to have my little one out because I knew it was on the left side and it was in pink. (laughs) So let's dig in. Let's look at Isaiah 47. Isaiah writes, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Does that seem strange to anybody? Anybody wonder what is he referring to when he says the virgin daughter of Babylon? See, as a nation, Babylon had never been conquered. What's interesting is that Babylon physically sat in this walled citadel that was virtually impenetrable. No opposing nation was able to penetrate the exterior because of where it was. But now in this prophecy from Isaiah, this spoiled princess... Babylon is no longer going to be protected as it once was, cast off her throne onto the ground. Vulnerable. Look at how Isaiah describes the situation going on. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind the flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. He refers to Babylon in a very different way. No longer royalty. She must now labor as a common slave grinding flour. She's been stripped of her royal garments. In verse 3 it says that her nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. Her nakedness is exposed to her everlasting shame. 
So if Babylon is the system of the world that's evil, Isaiah is saying that things will change. There will come a day where it will no longer wield the same power it once had. See, the ridiculousness of the world is being exposed. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Your disgrace shall be seen later on in verse 8. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, there is no one besides me. And then again in verse 10, the perspective of the world is that there is no one besides me. The world believes it is all-powerful. This is the world's system. Everything in it focuses on its own greatness. It's all about self. Look at verse 7. You said, I shall be mistress forever. So that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. See, the world believes its kingdom will never come to an end. The question, what happens to those who adopt this mindset? Those who are lured by the world to think that it's all about self. Look at verse 11. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. It says you can't talk your way out of it. it says disaster shall fall upon you. for which you will not be able to atone. You can't escape it. Ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. It's a ruin you can't understand. That's where the world ultimately is headed. See, Babylon is the world system that impacts and influences and imposes itself upon each one of us. And so you don't think that this is simply Isaiah talking about this. The Apostle John, in his first letter, chapter 2, said, For all that is in the world, he describes it, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The world is about self. As followers of Jesus, though, we should be different. We must strive to stand firm against Babylon's many charms that point us to simply satisfying and gratifying Self. See, the world is going to do everything it possibly can to lure us away from the truth. The world will tempt us with the idea that pleasing self should be our highest pursuit. Anybody ever experience that? Anyone? I saw one hand. We got one person who's being honest and the rest of y'all, well, you are pursuing self. See, in the midst of this pronouncement of judgment on the world for pursuing self, back in verse 4, we have the gospel. This is the thing that the world cannot understand. See, Isaiah is saying, Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen and I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. And then he shares the gospel. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. There is a Redeemer that will insert Himself into the middle of the world. And it's proclaimed in Isaiah. See, in the midst of the judgment of the Holy God... This warning to Israel that is repeatedly lured and tempted 
away from Him is the Gospel. Now in our own self-righteousness, we can think that we're exempt from that type of judgment or from that type of path. But the reality is that we are often lured away and defiled just as the Babylonians were. Each one of us is easily lured away. See, this is a warning to us. And in the midst of it, he says, you are not left to yourselves. We can run to Jesus who took our sin upon Himself because it says, our Redeemer, one who redeemed redemption from destruction. Now, why would God spend as much time as He has pointing out what is to come? And I believe it's because God is zealous for His people. God loves His people. It pains God to see His people lured away with things that are empty. See, in a wicked world where our culture hates Christ and hates Christians, we can rest confidently as we internalize chapter 47 that God will take action. See, God's not passive. God is actively at work. And it's not happening after the world is done. It is happening as the world is trying to do what it does. Brothers and sisters, God will avenge His people. In verse 5, He chastises the world. He says, a day will come when you're no longer desired. He's saying that to the world. Hey, for right now, people love you. But a day will come where you're no longer the desired mistress. God says, the only reason that you're experiencing this desire from the world, that type of influence over people, is because God has allowed it to happen. Yes, friends, God has allowed us to be attracted to the world to place His glory on display. Look in verse 6. The Lord through Isaiah says, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. God gave the Israelites into the hand of the Babylonians, into the hand of the Chaldeans. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. And then he repeats it. You said, I shall be mistress forever. See, God brought affliction on his people so they would turn back to him, but they didn't. So God turned the Israelites over into the hands of the world. And the world was unable to see that the reason they were able to have this type of influence over the Israelites was because God allowed it. They thought of themselves as God. And in verse 8, they effectively committed blasphemy. They said, I am, and there is no one besides me. Friends, that's not a good thing. This chapter isn't just pointing out that there was a group of people in history that misunderstood their situation. It's a call to us. If you were to count the number of times that you or your was used, you would see that it's 46 times in a chapter. It's used nine times in verse 12. That's a whole lot of repetition. See, when God uses you or your over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, 
I think he's trying to get something across. He's trying to get your attention. See, God is speaking to His creation through the prophet Isaiah. He's proclaiming judgment on the world, but He's also providing an example that we need to pay attention to. See, the world hasn't changed since Isaiah's time at all. There is nothing new under the sun. The world still pursues self. The world still says, I am and there is no one besides me. And this passage serves as a call to us, those who know the truth, to do what Isaiah did back then and to actively and persistently warn the world around us of the impending judgment. Friends, we are called to present Christ, our Redeemer, to a fallen world that's in desperate need of a Savior. We have a responsibility to warn the inhabitants of Babylon today of the wrath to come. And why can I say that type of statement with such confidence? Because of what we find in chapter 48. For some, you need to turn your page. Others, it's right there. See, in chapter 48... As we're called to warn those around us, God wants to make sure that we understand why. He has a purpose in saving us. But here's the thing. It's not for us. God does not save for us or for our present good. Now I realize this is not something you normally hear. And I promise you it's not something that's going to draw the masses. And whether we like the idea or not, we're going to look to see that it's true because in, God, in chapter 48, God through Isaiah clarifies that the ultimate reason God saves sinners is for His name's sake. It's not ultimately for our earthly good, but rather God saves sinners for God's name's sake. That becomes our highest good, but not necessarily our earthly good. In verse 1 of chapter 48, he starts, Hear this! And look how he refers to his people. O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah. What an honor it is to be referred by God as his chosen ones, is it not? And then he goes on who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is His name. See, they know the right things to say. See, God is affirming that His people talk in a way that says they follow the Lord. It says they call themselves after the holy city, and yet, they're not living like a covenantal people. Do you know anyone like that? I imagine you can quickly think of someone who says they believe in God, but they live in a way that makes you question that statement. It says, if they know the right thing to say, but something in their life just doesn't line up. 
You know those folks? See, he's, he's, spe- he's speaking to those who claim to follow the Lord, but according to verse 4, it says, because I know that you are obstinate. He calls them a stiff-necked people. Look at this. Your neck is an iron sinew. In your forehead, brass. They're hard-headed. Anybody know someone who's hard-headed? See, we have to read this passage and realize that to some degree, each of us falls into this camp. Despite their stubbornness, despite their hard-heartedness, God is going to reveal to them about the Redeemer to come. God, through the Isaiah, is going to describe the future sufferings of the servant Jesus Christ as our Redeemer beginning in the very next chapter. But to help His people better understand Him and His love, before He shares about the Redeemer, He explains why there is a Redeemer. God determined it critical to clarify why God saves people at all because it's easy for us in our pride to be just like the Israelites to think that it's all about me. See, to a degree, it's normal to think there's no one like me. And to a great degree, you all are thankful there's no one else like me. But see, it's easy for us to think that God has placed our salvation as the pinnacle of all He does because it's all about us. And here in Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11, God is going to clarify that it's not about you. He doesn't save because of us. He's saying, get over yourselves. Don't you ever think that what I'm about to tell you moving forward is all about you. So here's the reason. God saves people for His own glory. It's so important that He repeats it back to back in the same verse. Look in your Bible at verse 9. He says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Here it is, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. See, the problem though is that this idea our nature opposes. Like we can look at this and we can read it and we can say, yes, hallelujah. And inside we're going, I don't like that. I don't like that truth. The world desperately tries to fight to get us to forget this. The enemy wants us to think that we deserved to be saved. We often hear and use phrases like, Jesus loves you so much that He died on a cross for you. Who is the center of that statement? You. It's not wrong. It's just not wholly true. See, while it's true that Jesus does love us so much that He took our sin and our shame and the penalty we owed on Himself, it's not just because He loves us. He didn't endure the cross so we would be happy or that we would feel fulfilled or that we would feel special. 
He endured the cross for His own glory. See, in verse 9 it says, For His namesake, for my own namesake, I defer my anger, I delay, I restrain those things. Because He's incredibly patient with us. See, God doesn't instantly wipe us out when we sin, though He has every right to do so. He's the creator of all things. He's perfectly holy. When we sin, we're no longer holy. And what do we deserve? But see, by His grace, He's left a remnant of His people in every generation. The remnant has one job, one job to do. Glorify Him by pointing others to Him. That's our job. Now, Bill said it might help you all if we took a little sidebar here. Why is the phrase, for His name's sake, so important? What's so important about that phrase that he repeats it four times in three verses. Well, many years before the prophet Isaiah, there was a guy. You know a guy. Abraham, right? And see, God made a promise to Abraham that not only would his offspring be as great as the stars... But he also made a promise to Abraham that said, I will never completely wipe away your descendants from the face of the earth. And when he made that promise, he said it was for his name's sake. By keeping a remnant in every generation, God is demonstrating His complete faithfulness. That He is wholly trustworthy. That everything He has to say, we can count on. And in this passage, we get the privilege of witnessing the Lord remaining faithful to His specific promise. See, unless the Lord redeems, all of Abraham's offsprings are going to be wiped away. And what he's saying is that I'm going to remain faithful for the sake of my name because I made a promise and I'm going to redeem to bring it to fulfillment. See, the idea that God saves for His name's sake is found all throughout Scripture. Old Testament and 1 Samuel, we find Samuel saying, For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. There's the first part of Abraham's promise. And then in the New Testament, John, first letter, writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. The second part of Abraham's promise. So if this is true, I have a question for you. How often have you communicated the gospel that way? You can imagine it was a hard, hard week of internal reflection to know the things to say, but to not do them. That was the bunny trail. Now we're back to the regularly scheduled program. Instead of destroying God's people, 
on account of their obstinate hearts, as we saw in verse 4, their stiff-neckedness, their hard-headedness, God says here in chapter 58 that He patiently refines them through affliction. Now the immediate reference Isaiah is pointing to is likely exile in Babylon. That was the specifics. The principle is that our hearts are refined where dross surfaces in the fire and can then be skimmed off and removed. And the result of refining is that whatever is being refined is more pure. When something is more pure, it can withstand greater fire. We are being refined so we can withstand a greater enemy. And as God refines us through our afflictions, His purpose is to make us more pure, preparing us to be with Him forever. Friends, His refining is His kindness. His kindness in placing us in the midst of affliction is pure. Happiness and prosperity aren't the pinnacle. Eternity with Him is the pinnacle. So I want to know, how long are we supposed to endure the trials? How long are we to stand up in the midst of affliction? How long should we expect it to be refined by the fire? Well, the process of being refined by fire through trials will never be complete until we're glorified in Christ. That's not encouraging. But, we are not expected to endure the trials alone. Safe to say, Israelites in the midst of exile in Babylon is a trial. And in the midst of the trial, God says, our Redeemer, the Holy One, the Lord of hosts is His name. From the very beginning, God said, you're going to be in trial, but I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, we're not expected to endure the trials alone. The Lord sent the Helper. He sent the Spirit, who's the Comforter. He intends that the body of Christ would love and care and support and be practical hands and feet as you endure trial. If you're in ongoing, seemingly persistent trial, know that you are not alone. This passage says you are not alone. He will be with you, and the body should be with you. We are imperfect. We will not always love well. We will not always meet practical needs well. We will not always care. Some do it better than others. Others know what the right thing to do is and not do it. We are not perfect. But I can promise you that we're willing to be used by Him for your good. In these verses, we see that His ultimate glory and our eternal benefit are perfectly paired in the gospel. He says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. See, for His name's sake, He doesn't cut us off. He's faithful to fulfill His promise that He will redeem us. He defers judgment for our benefit. But when we prefer the idea that places our good as the highest benefit, His highest purpose, it has an uncomfortable allusion to chapter 47 where the world says, I am, and there is no other besides me. 
So a simple way to think about it is that we are not the pinnacle of God's saving work. God's glory is. And he goes on to remind his people how utterly unique he is. Why is God's glory the pinnacle of his saving work? Look with me as he describes himself in verse 12. He says, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. And God follows this declaration that He is sovereign and in control of all things by providing a specific instruction. He says, assemble all of you and listen. That's verse 14. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm he shall against the Chaldeans. He's speaking out against those who have wronged God's people. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. Then he says in verse 16, Draw near to me and hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. And verse 17 starts, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Should sound familiar to chapter 47. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this, there's a new voice that enters the scene. And when you look at this, this new voice sounds just like the suffering servant of the Lord who we're going to see introduced to the Israelites next week. And what he's saying is you can't redeem yourself, only the Lord redeems. He says, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Kind of hard to hear. Now talk about a contrast from chapter 47 where the knowledge led them astray, where disaster falls upon them, right? Chapter 47, verse 11 says, But evil shall come upon you for which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone. You can't do this. And then a little bit later, he says, Hey, give it a shot. He says in verse 12 of chapter 47, Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. So give it a shot. Try. Perhaps you may inspire terror. Just maybe. And then verse 14 of chapter 47. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. The reality is the Israelites are no different. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. We are no different. We cannot deliver ourselves from the power of the flame. So again, he says, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, had you paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves 
of a sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. What is that right there? Abraham's promise. See, if you obeyed, if you had listened to my voice, you would not need a redeemer. But you didn't. And so he says, you need a Savior. I am the Savior. Look at verse 20. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Today's language. Go out from the world. Go out from where you reside. Go out from where you find yourself. And he says, declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. It's interesting that Isaiah calls people to proclaim how he redeems by reminding them of what he's already done. Isaiah reminds them of how God provided for the Israelites' need in the desert. See, Isaiah says, They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. Now, it's interesting because if you know the story of Moses striking the rock, what's astounding is that the people were thirsty. Right? Why else did they need water in the desert? They needed something to survive. Moses interceded on behalf of the people with God, and God commands Moses to strike a rock. Anybody in here ever play baseball? Anybody? We got a few baseball players. Anybody ever play golf? Not as many play golf. Okay. So, for those who like baseball or golf, imagine taking the best bat or the best club you have and going out to a rock and saying, I'm going to hit this thing with everything I got. And once I finally break through it, I'm going to provide enough water for an entire nation. What would it sound like if you're out there with a wooden bat hitting a rock? What's the crack going to be? The bat. It's a beautiful sound in Major League Baseball to hear that bat crack. It's fun. But see, Moses takes this staff and he strikes the rock and from the rock, water gushes out. According to this though, who split the rock? It says, they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts because God made Water flow for them from the rock. God split the rock and water gushed out. See, while Moses participated in the activity, there is nothing that Moses could do in his own strength to provide water for the people. The Lord provided for His people in the midst of the affliction that He placed them in. And it's no different for us. We cannot provide for ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. We can't make water come from a rock. God provides. God saves. God saves us for God's sake. Yes, we benefit, but God saves for God's sake because He's zealous for His own glory. And after this beautiful picture of God providing for His people in the midst of the affliction with which He's placed in, He ends with this phrase. 
There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. That's the passage. There were three takeaways for me as I was preparing. First, as we consider our tendency to place ourselves as the center of the universe, we should ask God to grant us the same zeal for His glory that He has. Pray that God would work in our hearts so we stop placing our own worth above God's glory. Pray that God would work in such a way that we stop placing earthly things above eternal things. That was number one. Second takeaway for me. As we continue to walk in our tendency to place ourselves as the center of the universe, recognize that we are just as rebellious and stiff-necked as an obstinate as the Israelites were and therefore are in desperate need of a Savior. I think sometimes we forget that we need a Savior. I think sometimes we believe that because we've already been saved, there's nothing else we need to think about. Pray that God would grant you grace to submit to His righteousness and His laws. Knowing that when we are enabled to do that, it brings Him glory. And the accompanying result is that we are granted peace. He says it twice in the passage. Hey, had you listened and obeyed, then your peace would have been like a river. And at the end, he says, there is no peace for the wicked. So pray that we would desire His glory over our peace. And then number three, be encouraged. Be motivated. Be convinced of the call to relentlessly declare with shouts of joy that the Lord has redeemed His people. Leave here convinced that the one job you have to do is to unashamedly share that God has redeemed you for His glory. Friends, for God's sake, God saved us. For His name's sake, He was faithful to His promise and has called you out of darkness. Positionally, you are already His. You've already been transferred into His kingdom. But He chooses to allow you to walk in the midst of affliction so that you can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you. Is that what motivates you day in, day out to proclaim His excellencies? To unashamedly share that God has redeemed you not because you deserve it but for His glory. For God's sake, He saved us. Let that be the message that emanates from your lips this week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have placed each one of us in a position where we have a variety of relationships. For some of us, life is relatively easy. For others, we are in the midst of affliction. Very similar to the Israelites who are in captivity, who have been tormented, 
who have been enslaved. But Lord, you have called us out of darkness. You have transferred us into the kingdom of your Son. And the world would want us to believe that we are still ensnared, that we are still enslaved. Lord, help us to know that that's simply not true. You have redeemed your people. You've already borne our sin. You've taken on our shame. So as we, when we are mocked by the world, we can look to you. Lord, I pray that you would instill in us the desire to bring you glory that we no longer talk in a way and live differently. That when others around us say, oh yeah, they say they are, but I've seen this. Lord, let that not be true of us. Stir in us the courage and the desire that we would proclaim the fact that we have a Redeemer. The Holy One of Israel is His name. Lord, help us to leave here encouraged. While we're aware of our sin, we are more aware of Your grace. Or do what only You can do. Cause us to turn. Cause us to pursue You. Cause us to set aside the things the world says it has to offer to pursue the eternal glory which is you yourself. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.